Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we're looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, the first Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and I also studied French. <laughs> Today, we are talking about Minute 63, which begins with Zola standing in surprise and ends with Zola recognizing Dr. Erskine's work via the monitor. Back on the show again, it's Matthew Fox from last season. Hello, Matthew. Hey, glad to be back here. Uh, We are thrilled to have you talking, Captain America. We're up in the control room again with with Zola and Schmidt. And uh, Zola, you know, he has monitors right in front of him. There are literally two monitors right in front of him. One, why is he not noticing anything? And two, why does he now need to dramatically stand up and walk toward the camera? I laugh when I watch this uh, in this format. I probably never noticed it until now, but I'm like, <laughs> there are two monitors like right in front of his face. Why Why is he not noticing any of this? How does this play for the two of you? Because he's so focused on the science. It's just always about science. It's not about what monitors and closed circuit TV. This is all science up in here. Sciences <laughs> and alarms. Like It's all know. science and alarms. Why is he even allowed in this room? That's the minute. <laughs> science and alarms. <laughs> oh, geez. I don't know. Yes. I tell you. Matthew, how yeah. does that how does it work for you? You know, like I said before. I think that everything Schmidt does is perfectly thought out and perfectly reasoned, but you all want to keep poking holes in his stuff. So. <laughs> I, I'm so far beyond trying to find any logic in what, what Schmidt does. And it yeah. just – a lot of this is because of what happens later with like the whole bomb – the plane and the bombs and it's just – I don't understand any of his plan and I don't think the writers did either. And And so, yeah, at this point, it just seems – I think the one thing we get about Schmidt's character in this that we've we've gotten a little bit before, but but is a good part of his character, is just his utter disregard for the lives of his own men. You know, because it is again still this like Ubermensch, I am the 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 mighty super soldier, everyone else is beneath me. Like it is interesting to me that he doesn't seem to be trying to well, I guess he does he wants to get the serum because he wants to get he wants to make more people like him. Mm-hmm. But until he can, he thinks everyone's worthless. And so, you know, we get that scene where the other scientists is like, wait, we, we can't blow all the other people up. And it's like our forces are outmatched. And and to me that's so clearly, A, they're worthless to me. Uh, so why not kill them when they're no longer performing a service? But B, the fact that they're outmatched is proving to me that they're worthless to me. So sure, hit the button, move on. Yeah, it's an interesting bit of time that we spend in the control room, and I, I do have a lot of questions, a lot of questions about it. Actually, I have a question first for you, Doctor Zola, Toby Jones. Uh, do you like this character? Because we haven't. This is uh, your first time, really. I mean, at the end of last minute, I suppose. But really, we haven't had much of a chance to talk about Toby Jones as Doctor Arnim Zola. Do you like the character and the way that he's used in this film and then? subsequent in well i guess just the later film well that's the thing is i don't know who i like better this dr zola or his twin brother who shows up in winter soldier because the two are nothing alike like in this right yeah in in winter soldier he's very dedicated to hydra he's he's so on board with hydra's ideals and goals and everything and i remember loving that character and then going back and watching this one and seeing this zola as utterly terrified of schmidt in no way seeming to believe in the ideals that Schmidt cares about. He's just 
he's the scientist guy. He's good at science. And this guy's probably going to pew pew him into next week unless he does the things he's supposed to do. Like he never expresses in any way support for Hydra's goals. And in fact, here he's actually working – like he clearly doesn't have that same idea of we are the ones who should survive. Forget about all these other soldiers. I, I like both characters. I think they both play very important roles in their respective movies. And in this one, he's kind of like, you know, you often talk about how a character needs a side character either to be an exposition machine to or to like show their flaws by the other character having goodness or the reverse. And like, yeah, you need someone who has humanity to say, wait, why are we blowing these soldiers up to show just how you know evil Red Skull is that he doesn't care? And I think the, the character in Winter Soldier plays a very important role. They're just radically different from each other. But I guess one of my issues with this scene is that he's also blowing up the whole factory full of bombs and everything else they've been building at 60% faster. Like, I, I am so perplexed by this move. Like, why don't they... Perhaps instead, lure Captain America out. Like, I, like blow the whole thing up. Like, what? I, it's such a perplexing thing to me. I, I struggle with this so much. That part only makes sense to me because I think the idea is the Americans are about to capture them, and if the Americans get these weapons, then they can use them against us, and then we're not the only ones who have them. And so it's just blow everything up so that the Americans don't get them. Which is actively being demonstrated in this very minute as Dum Dum gets in with the with the boys and they get in the, the pew pew tank and they actually start using it on on Hydra. And you get to see what what fresh hell they uh, are able to um, unleash. And so I think that's fine. I, it is also in like the, the performative commentary is that he is a little bit sort of... Um, unmoved by the need to destroy the factory like he they show no concern that that or at least schmidt shows no real concern it's just a very casual uh our forces are outmatched and they look at captain america who's punchy punch uh, on the closed circuit which i think is a megalomaniac kind of way to deliver this line like i think it's i think he's fine because he's crazy and I think that's the important thing to get out of this. It's fine because he's nuts. And as long yeah. as you buy that as table stakes, he can get away with a lot. Yeah. He still has the Tesseract. So nothing else matters. Right. Because one man with a Tesseract can defeat the entire world. And can certainly make it. a lot more pew pew guns. Probably it's 70 percent faster. I have to go 80 when he gets, you know, because yeah, now he's losing they, this whole compound. Too. Right. The whole thing's blown up. Yeah, the whole thing. So, all right. Well, you know, uh, I, it, it's fine. I I can buy into that. Yes, he's just so crazy that it just ends up making sense that the only way out is to just destroy it all and, um, you know, ump, uh, up the uh, production at the other factories. Mm -hmm. I am curious, though, because I definitely saw some skeptical looks. Maybe it was just about that. But is there more of a connection that you see between this Zola and the Winter Soldier Zola? Oh, no, no. I think we're in agreement with you. Uh, okay. I, think, <laughs> yeah. I think he so far when we see him, like he seems excited about the idea of getting to play with the Tesseract as a tool to build all of these crazy inventions that he's been thinking about and dreaming of. He finally does. And I think his intentions are likely let's give it to Hitler and have them use it against the other troops. But then, you know, all of a sudden, Schmidt is killing three SS officers that come to visit. And 
And I think from that point forward, Zola really seems to have some kind of concerns about uh, what is going on, what is the future of this organization here. And so there is a really interesting aspect to that character here that you're right, when you get to him, the computer version later, it doesn't seem like he's at all the same character. And there's a really fun aspect to that idea, I think, because I think this is something that we're starting to see more in fiction because it's a very good kind of villain. The villain is not necessarily immoral, they're amoral. Like they 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 love the science so much that they think science is by definition value neutral, and they're not putting any thought into what are people going to do. You know, there's a great Tom Lehrer song about um the the German missile scientist Werner von Braun who helped design the V ones and V twos, and then went over to help the Americans. And the line is, once the rocket goes up, who cares where it comes down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Right. Uh, and I think it's very much the same with this guy. You know, it's like for Zola at first, she's like. This science is so cool. I'm going to just ignore the things this guy says he wants to use with the science because it's so darn cool. And then eventually it becomes, A, my life is in danger, but also this guy's a, a fruitcake and a nutcase. And and now is why he's now trying to push back again and be like, hey, wait, maybe we shouldn't kill all our own soldiers. Yeah, there's a certain amount of his own identity that needs to come out because in this movie, he's just a foil for yeah, yeah. Schmidt. Right. And perhaps there is an element to Zola and I guess I'd be curious of like, what is the structure of Hydra beyond Schmidt? Uh, you know, is I mean, again, you know, cut off one head, two more appear, that whole sort of thing. But in the film, it makes it seem like Schmidt is kind of the head of Hydra. And I mean, they, they pretty much spell that out. But perhaps once Schmidt is gone at the end of this film, those other heads that appear Turn Hydra into something that Zola may be more in support of. That's right, possible. And as he as he kind of sees it grow, and it, it, uh, this is all speculation because all of this is obviously between the two films. But as he sees it grow, he sees it growing into the thing that he always envisioned Hydra as it was meant to be. Well, and I think that's one of the things about Hydra that I, I of all the things I think the MCU has done so well, I think Hydra is one of the ones they've really kind of fumbled on because for a while it felt like. Hydra wasn't like the 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 cut off one head, two more grows. It was a Russian nesting doll, where it was Hydra's all about Ubermensch taking over the society. No, actually, it's all about um these three different people who want corporate control over everything. No, actually, it's about this alien who we want to bring back to to rule us all. Uh, like Agents of Shield, I think had three completely different motivations for Hydra. Each one saying, "No, this is the real one." And then your Russian nesting doll and like, no, actually, this is the real one. So, yeah, I, I, I think that is a fair point that with with it's very possible that Zola doesn't believe in this version of Hydra, but he believes in the Winter Soldier one. Yeah. But I wish there had been some line of like, you know, that idiot Schmidt didn't know what he was doing. But now that Robert Redford is here, he understands the true power of Hydra. So I'm on board or something like that. Right. right. You make Hydra sound much more like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, like pulling off the mask. <laughs> I watched all eight seasons of, of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and I loved a lot of it. And a lot of it was good and a lot of it was really bad. And what they like the season where Hydra was an alien they were trying to bring back. It was just so bad. Uh, well, so I, Scooby, Scooby-Doo feels accurate. But yeah, probably fits. Probably fits. And, and fittingly, Schmidt does pull a mask off in this film. So there is there is 
a direct tie-in to the Scooby-Doo if universe. If it weren't for you lousy <laughs> kids. That's honestly the look I get every time he pulls off the mask. It just is so ridiculous. <laughs> and I know, I know, if I'd read the comics, I would love Red Skull. I would know how important it was, but Ooh, I just... I'm not I, sure. <laughs> I, I can't, I cannot in any way take him seriously as a villain I should be worried about once he takes off the mask. It's just... He just looks like the animatronic guy at a Disney ride. I mean, yeah. Funny, in the comics, you know, the vast majority, like when he's introduced, it was just the Red Skull. I mean, that was why he had the moniker. And he. it wasn't until, uh, at least as far as one of our guests had told us, is like much later in the comics is well, like sometimes he'd have a mask on and, or not. But like uh, when we first meet him, it's this is the Red Skull character. And so it was interesting in the film that they actually set it up where you know, he's actually wearing a man mask over his over his Red Skull just to, I don't, I, I get, I'm not even sure why. Like, why? Is, is he just trying to, like, make, it, make the troops not creeped out all the time? I think, yeah, because at first he needs Hitler's support. He needs Hitler to give him all these troops and to give him all these tanks. Yeah, but, Hit, but Hitler knows about the Red Skull. Like, it, it's all part of his, his thing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's one of like I, I made some jokes last time, and maybe I'll talk about it a little bit more here. It's one of the things I think that is why Schmidt makes so little sense to me in this movie because one of the things that we we established with Captain America is he has these great set of powers, which help him to lead a tactical combat group. But he doesn't become a strategist. He doesn't become uh, I'm going to be be behind the scenes pushing all the pawns. And he like he's faster, he's better, he's strong, he is physically the Ubermensch, but he's not sort of like now elected to this great ruling class. Schmidt very much believes that because he had the same serum that Captain America does, that now he is this Ubermensch. So, but if he has the set of powers that Captain America has, that should mean that he wants to always be the one in battle. He wants to always be the one punching all the weaker, pathetic soldiers and 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 winning the physical fights. But he doesn't do that. He's just leading and coming up with plans. But then also, it's just the fact that he has the tesseract that gives him all this power. Like it, it doesn't. I, I don't have any understanding of why it is he thinks he's better than everybody else, and where the Red Skull starts and the tesseract ends and. I don't know. If y'all can tell me, I, I love it. But uh, <laughs> and you may be well told me over the last sixty minutes, and I'm taking over your podcast again. I apologize, but I don't know if there's a clear answer for that. I mean, because as as Doctor Erskine says, the serum wasn't ready. But is that why he turned red, or did he turn red because that was who he truly was on the inside? As and Erskine says, you know, it amplifies what you are on the inside. Like it, it's. I don't know. And, and and again, in the comics, like he wasn't injected with super soldier serum. I mean, I guess it is something that comes at some point. But in the initial comics, he isn't a, like the absolute alternate version of Steve as he is here in the film. So it's all very peculiar and it's not explained very well. It's just there. And we're left uh, kind of scratching our heads a little bit with it. So yeah. I don't know if there's any more uh, that we can pull out because it's it is a little perplexing. It is perplexing. Let's go down to the tanks for a little bit, uh, down to the compound. We have more fighting, fighty fight fight. Uh, and this is where we get the little the joke. We've got Dum Dum Dugan hopping into the tank. He doesn't know how to drive it. It's, it doesn't look like a Buick. 
And, uh, you know, uh, Jones hops in behind him and conveniently speaks German, points out Zundung, which means ignition. And so they're able to start the tank and, uh, and Fallsworth joins them and they go driving around shooting things, blowing things up. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's action scene. It's escape scene. We're watching the heroes learn how to defeat the villains. Uh, is there anything really to talk about out here? I mean, it's just a lot of, I mean, the one thing I will say is, you know, Dum Dum Dugan seems very, uh, very much like the one of the five characters who's given a lot more personality than the others. You know, he's got that whole that line when Jones mentions like how he, you know, took, you know, essentially his story about having learned German before he switched to France. And he's like, I didn't ask for a resume. And then he's got the best Yahoo as he's going around blowing things up. Uh, how does all of this play for the two of you with with them sh- driving around in the tank shooting stuff? I love this exchange so much because it's not just like uh, I didn't ask for a resume, like the whole statement of class as measured by academic performance. The fact that he says, you know, three semesters at Howard, one of the, the like legendary uh, HBCUs uh, that uh, I think really speaks a lot to just his uh, awareness and his place in time and in history that that even in 1940, I mean, uh, there are 43 Howard had been around for almost 100 years, 80, 90 years, um, and had a real, he he has a real pedigree. Like, it makes me want to know about Jones even more, uh, but not too much because he's still just howling commando, right? Like, I I just love it. And I love that it creates that interplay, that sort of cultural rift between the two of them and that they still have fun shooting pew-pew things. Yeah, I, I think it's a fun moment for a couple of reasons. First of all, it tells me that if I ever want to steal a plane or any other piece of very complicated machinery, I just need to steal one with American writing on the buttons. Because as long as I can read the names of the buttons, yeah. I can figure out everything I need to about You're it. You're going to be fine. You know, there you go. That's all it takes. Um, but also, I think it's very interesting that, yeah, that it is it is what it is a second time in literally just a few minutes where we have an interesting racial moment because yet yeah, in 1940s the black person having more education than the white guy is not what you'd expect. Mm-hmm. And here he doesn't make a crack like. The idea that, like, the guy saying I'm from Fresno, like, taught him his lesson and now suddenly he's not racist is is a little silly. I don't think that's what's happening. But I think they're very intentionally showing another moment that could be a bit racially charged and he has a very different reaction. Here he's just, like, talking to the guy the way he would any other soldier instead of, like, the Dugan of five minutes ago who might have been like, really? You had an education or something like that? Or he might have said, like, I would have pegged you for a college boy or something like that. And – so, again, I don't know how much I'm reading into it there, but it's, it feels intentional that you have these two moments so close together where, yeah, now it is just they're equals, they're soldiers, they're having a good time together. Yeah. They're blowing up Nazis in a tank they stole. What's more fun? They're blowing up Nazis. That's right. Um, just a few important things about the character of Gabe Jones. He actually was the first regular uh, African-American uh, supporting character in the comics. So that's uh, that's mm. actually an important note for him. And also... He actually had a relationship in the comics with Pe- Peggy Carter, and it was one of the first interracial relationships in the comics. Wow. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, again, going back to what you were saying the other day, Matthew, about uh, what Marvel was doing back at this point, uh, that it's, you know, mm-hmm. you know, people may be, you know, throwing all these complaints at them and, you know, why are they so woke now and all this nonsense? But in reality, 
Marvel has been doing this sort of stuff for a long time. And I think that's uh, just important to uh, to make note of. Although it does make me ask, granted, I've not seen these movies in a while, but is he the first, other than Nick Fury, who's mostly just been an end credits guy, and he had a bigger role in Iron Man 2, is he the first other named black character we've had in the MCU? Oh, no. We, who we has some kind of significant role? Oh, wait, Rhodey. Uh, Rhodey. Oh, of course. I'm an idiot. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm very dumb. Entirely nope. ignore me. No worries, no worries. It's hard to remember him because, you know, he completely changed. <laughs> Suddenly, who is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> Look, if She-Hulk can make that joke about, um, you know, Ed Norton going away, then I hope that, that the MCU will make that joke with Rhodey. But right. 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 End tangent, continue our script. Yep, yep. Uh, the other important thing to note here is, you know, we have Schmidt uh, using his little surveillance monitors to look and see what's happening around the compound, and he's switching from camera to camera. I, I, he's got a seriously uh, innovative system for his time because not only does he have this whole closed circuit TV system in his compound, but they also he can pan the cameras around, so he has control of the cameras. Uh, but what's important is that he actually goes over and he sees a single soldier fighting his troops, seems to have some sense of a recognition. And that is the, the catalyst that triggers him to set all the, the destruct buttons uh, to activate and tell Zola that we're getting the hell out of here, basically. So he recognizes this figure. How does this play for the two of you of him seeing uh, Steve Rogers battling the troops, and and uh, what does that say about his knowledge of him? Yeah, that's a really good question. Why? Uh, because he, like we've already talked about, like why does he? What does he know of Captain America at this point? That has been questionable for the last sixty minutes, and we will find out later in the film when he actually meets him that he's seen all of his films. Like he knows the character of Captain right. America. Right. But that's a character. That's a figure who is selling war bonds and and inspiring the Americans to support their troops. And suddenly here in the dramatic push security cam footage, he he Schmidt is able to somehow connect the dots that this actor, this buff actor is also a capable soldier. Not just a capable soldier, Perhaps but the augmented? super soldier. The, yeah, right. the super soldier. Like that's. All of that just happens. Like, all of that just goes through his head here. I mean, I think it's kind of like a game recognizes game. You know, like, he sees himself. And he has, first of all, he, he, you know, he did have a spy in the program. He did try to stop it back then. So he's been very aware of this program from the beginning. And I can completely believe that he had, like, he's been watching the films. And, and he, he probably knows that, yeah, this guy is for real. And I think that's why he gives up so quickly. Because he's, I mean, party wonders why he doesn't go out and fight Steve right then and there instead of later in the scene. But to me, him recognizing Steve immediately and realizing it's Captain America, that fits with what's been happening so far about how interested he is in this program. So, OK, so that's interesting because we've talked about the fact that his spy, Kruger, that he had failed in his mission. He gets killed or he, he gets stopped by Steve and then uh, chews on his cyanide capsule and dies. Never gets the word out to uh, to Schmidt that not only did they succeed in the super soldier program, uh, but he did. He actually succeeded in killing Dr. Erskine and the fact that there is no super soldier serum left. None of that got communicated at all to Schmidt. But so the way that but you're didn't, making didn't the American press communicate that 
I, not really. They they I, I thought, they I just say mystery you... man, and 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 they mm, never say okay. it's a super like it's never been revealed to the American public that this person who you see at the USO tour is a super soldier. It's just an actor, as far as they're concerned. I mean, yes, he's picking up a motorbike, but surely there's stage magic to make that happen. Like, I I don't think that they. I don't know. I, I guess I should say the film never lays out the fact that the American uh, the the USO tour is deliberately telling everybody this is a super soldier like it's it's not stated in the film in any way that that is very clear it just always it always seems like a promotional thing just like uncle sam or any other thing so it makes me think that maybe the way that you're describing that there are other hydra agents in the u.s government who do have some of the information and have been able to relay to him that hey this person that you're seeing in these films that's actually the super soldier that uh you need to stop and also say you all have done much more in-depth study of the movie so i will take your word over it over mine but certainly the implication i got every time i've watched the movie is that everyone knows he's a super soldier like I, th- I thought that was very clear and that what they were saying is like, look at this. The proud example of the very best of America is here trying to get you to do this. And and the idea being like really like, yes, you could be on the battlefield punching people, but you're going to do much more good selling bonds, which I happen to agree with. Um, but like <laughs> I, I – yeah. So, so – and again, that might be my head cannoning. Like you all have done more in-depth analysis, so it's entirely possible. I'm just filling in that gap. But certainly that was always the assumption I came away with. Well, and I think that's actually a really interesting assumption. And it could very well be that this is that that uh, that Joe Johnston and team expected the audience to connect all these pieces together. And but but I think this is representative of what Andy and I watching this movie uh, sort of pull apart is that it never tells you this. It never says that Captain America is a super soldier and we should all be very publicly proud of him. It never tells us that. So the only thing we have to go on is minute by minute what the movie is telling us. It's a surprise that we're still at 61 minutes or 63 minutes into this thing where we're looking at dramatic push security cam uh, and seeing that this actor is punching out Hydra guards. I guess here's my question is, if the world doesn't know that this actor is the super soldier, why use the super soldier? Because he's like – as we see in that first scene where he's reading the script and when he's so bad interacting with the troops, he's not good at this role. Like put Bob Hope up there. He's going to be much better at the role. So why use this guy unless you're telling people he's the super soldier? Well, I, I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, obviously, Steve wants to do it as a way to kind of, you know, find a way to support other than being locked up and studied at Alamogordo, which is what Colonel Phillips seemed to want of him, since nobody wants to bring him to the front lines. And Senator Brandt offers him this opportunity. I think it's as a sales technique to kind of like, you know, excite the American public about it. But I mean, that's a good point that it seems like they should be making it clear that this is a super soldier. The fact that the film doesn't specify that makes me think that they never really decided because like Mm. from the government's perspective, it seems that they wouldn't want the enemy to necessarily know that they had this essentially secret weapon that they could potentially figure out how to use. Or, I mean, at this point, They've failed to do to kind of create this super soldier program that they wanted. So now they have like this one remnant of this failed plan. And I don't think that they necessarily would want them to know just in case they can figure out what to do with Captain America's blood. So it seems so governmentally secret 
that the fact that it's not clarified in the film it's it's weird it seems like they're not revealing it so that people can kind of you know read into it how they want is it something that senator brant is using as a sales technique or is it in fact a secret and everybody just thinks it's a it's a you know beefcake of an actor who's who's playing this soldier so in terms of like the way the way movie makers reveal this is not arguing with you i'm i'm asking cuz you all know so much more about this process than i do I, you're talking, you're saying that it's never really revealed. I would think the scene in the USO show where he's holding up the motorcycle with the, the dancers on it, that that is the reveal. But you think that's not, or there's something about the way that's done that makes you think it's not? That can be played Broadway shows, Broadway magic. Like people can look at that and, and think that, oh, wow, this is, um, you know, stage magic. Like they have that thing mm-hmm. on wires and are, are doing this thing to make this guy look great. It's the fact like there is an element of the film that we were talking about, like, is Steve doing other things in these shows? Like, is he demonstrating his strength by, like, having some people come up on stage and picking them up and or whatever it is right. to kind of demonstrate, like, how strong he is? It's never shown. And so that's the weird thing about the film is, like, they don't clarify that in any mm-hmm. way. I mean, yes, he is holding up a motorbike, but I mean, and so I guess we're left to read that either way. Are, is the audience thinking it's stage magic or are they going, wow, that guy is really strong? And I, I guess I can see it playing both ways because the filmmakers right. don't give us a very clear answer of, wow, everybody in the audience is so shocked and amazed that he's picking up a motorbike. And and I do think that there is something to this, to, to the fact that Brandt puts him on stage not knowing if he's a good salesman at all because he's a pretty face, right? He's a big, hunky representation of the American war effort, and we can make him uh, into the, the right. you know, the we want you poster. We can do all of that just through marketing magic. Uh, you know, we don't – he doesn't – any – beefcake could have been up there right like any himbo could have been up on stage uh, doing this they just happened to have this one right here standing in that hallway 20 minutes ago uh so he's a utility player and he specifically grabs him because of that newspaper headline like he just he stopped a nazi in in the streets of new york and, and I think this is where also – and this is one of the things I really loved even though it kind of made me laugh sometimes. Uh, I love about the minute-by-minute minute format is we wind up delving far more into the logic of the movie and the, the, the intent of the characters than sometimes I think we can give the writer credit for. Because I, <laughs> I think you have me convinced that within the logic of the movie, yes, it is very unclear why they're using Cap and what are they showing. I would die on the hill that Joe Johnson said to himself, I'm going to show him holding up a motorcycle and that'll be enough for everyone to know that everybody knows he's Captain America. Now, it may also be I'm just trying to defend the fact that I was dumb enough to fall for that. So maybe that's why I'm defending it. Uh, but yeah, I, I, think, I think certainly you have me convinced that yet yeah, within the logic of the movie, within the world of the movie, it's entirely possible that most people would not have put together – that this is Captain America from what we've been seeing. Well, you don't necessarily want to feel like as a director that you have to spell everything out for your audience. And I, I think a lot of directors do. Uh, and I mean, I think that's the nature of storytelling is you want to be able to give your audience a few pieces and have them figure it out. So yes, Joe Johnston probably said people when they watch the film, when they see Captain America holding up a motorcycle, 
they are going to get. Oh, he's strong. I don't need to cut to uh, you know a shot of three people in the audience um, in shock and awe as he does so to further clarify that. So yeah, I mean, I, I think likely we may also be reading more into it than than they intended. Um, but yeah, I, but I think that's when you have something that is created that's a little more vague like this it is it does allow some questions to pop up especially because it is a secret program it's this secret uh program that the government had and the fact that senator brant would then be so flagrantly flaunting it in the american public uh and telling them that hey this is this secret program that we had we made a super soldier come check him out like uh, part of me thinks i don't know if the military is going to go for that so i guess maybe that's why i have those questions yeah so fandom has taught me the proper response to this moment. We <laughs> oh, need dear. to start the hashtag, give us the Joe, release the Johnson cut, <laughs> the because Joe. clearly that's what we do, because I'm betting that somewhere on some cutting room floor, there were those audience scenes and stuff like, let's see his true vision. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. The whole release the Snyder cut movie movement was awful. Don't bully filmmakers like that. But yeah, that's... So fan, fandom cut. has Don't also tell. ruined you, is what you're saying. Fandom has broken mm. us. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I, I'm I'm Jewish from New York. I have to say that I love something by talking about all the ways it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have I have one last question here, and it is why why seven minutes? Why are all the self-destruct timers for the compound set to seven minutes? Like, have they timed this so they know? When we it push all these minutes. buttons, it takes us seven minutes to get from here up to the uh, the escape hatch that we're going to be escaping out of. It, I don't know. I find it very funny that that was the time. In film, it's always like ten minutes or something, and it's just like it's all seven. Is that like is that Schmidt and his like I'm that much more better than you? I I can do it in seven. What you have to take ten for. <laughs> so I actually wondered that. My first thought was, well, seven is the number of the gods. And then I realized, wait a minute, no, 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 that that's from Game of Thrones. Because uh, I've been reading a lot of Game right. of Thrones recently. But the, I mean, seven is one of those mystical numbers often in numerologies and, and things. And I think certainly in, uh, I think in Greek god myths, like the number seven has a lot of significance. Certainly does in a lot of mythologies. I don't know if it has specific significance within um, the Thor, within uh, Norse mythology. Uh, again, that, that's my job to research. Sorry, I forgot that part. But um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure about that, but that's that's the best I got. Maybe I thought seven is kind of more of a sacred number. Yeah, I could buy that, right? Seven angels, seven seals, seven trumpets. Or maybe the writer was just bored of ten. I mean, I do think there's something interesting with that. I, I think there's an interesting uh, – something potentially interesting with that. And I wish I had a better shot in here to see – does he have seven switches? Are there seven switches also to, for oh. the detonation thing that he has to flip? But um, that would have been an interesting thing. Uh, it is weird, though, that he has a whole... I mean, he at least has three that he has to switch. Um, it is kind of an odd thing. Like, why not just one? Like, what happens if he only does one and not the rest? Is it only going to blow up, like, the left half? Or how does that work? I, it's, it's, again, going back to Schmidt and the logic with all of this stuff, I don't really get it. So, Andy, you've pulled me all the way back in. I'm doing some research. Uh, Google has told me that that according to the uh, uh, website that I used before in Norse mythology, uh, I'm going to quote, in the Lay of Gundrun, which I think is like a book or a scroll or something, that the number seven is also mentioned multiple times as something that is a rather long time and ends with something that is complete. 
So often a lot of it in the Norse mythology will be for seven days we rode across the cold land, but seven days we hit the waves. The the third seven days we went onto a dry land. So hmm. interesting. Seven does have some real resonance in Norse mythology. Okay. Well interesting. I like I like that I now thinking about that Schmidt really actually designed this entire factory with the number seven in mind, knowing that, okay, from whatever point we have, it's going to be seven minutes. So we can only build it big enough so that we can all get out in seven minutes time. I like, uh, I like to think that now. So there it is. Yeah. I'm in favor of that. All right. Um, my research is done. My <laughs> yeah. This is why you're here. This is why you're here. One last thing that I wanted to just mention. This is just kind of a funny note, but, uh, you know, I I don't know about uh, the line we have from, uh, you know, we talked about the Jones and and Dugan exchange uh, and how he switched to French because French has cuter girls. Okay, he's saying something about French and German women, I suppose. Interestingly, in the German dub of the film, they actually changed the joke. And what he says is the engineering girls are ugly. I don't know. I'm not sure how any of this actually benefits these characters in in their uh, in my opinion of them and how they view women. The engineering girls like it was not a uh, like French versus German. It was engineering versus Right, because apparently it wasn't about studying German. It was. I, it must have been something like he was. He changed. He went. He he studied French instead because engineering girls are ugly. I, I, it doesn't make any okay. sense to me. Exactly. I mean, I mean, German is like Germany is often associated with, with engineering, and a lot of engineering texts maybe are written in German or something like that. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, it just seems odd. I like. I I just took it as. You know, in warfare, you always try to, like, put down the other side and yeah. kind of dehumanize them a bit. And so, like, their men are weak and pathetic. Their women are ugly. Their buildings are ugly. You know, it's just – so, yeah, kind of it, – it sounds like the kind of thing a soldier would say yeah. completely regardless of why he actually decided to, to switch to French. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. it's what you'd say. That's what you'd say. That's uh, – my, my French teacher always used to say – and he was a man of the age where he was around during the war. And he always used to say that the uh, the French can – take out the trash and make it sound like they're making love to a woman and the Germans can make love to a woman and make it sound like they're taking out the trash. So uh, <laughs> I, like these kinds of language and uh, stereotypes have been around for the ages and it does seem like an English language American movie about a big American hero would certainly level up those kinds of jokes. So, you know, As someone who grew up in a family where if you bought a German car, you were kind of exiled for a little bit. Um, yeah. My parents, were, you know, my father was Born, a Jewish, born right after World War II. Right. My father did not have positive feelings about Germans, so I'm going to just leave that comment entirely. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap up this minute. Uh, Matthew, remind everyone again where they can tune into your shows. Yeah, theethicalpanda.com. There you'll find all my podcasts. But but this day I wanted you to talk about uh, TikTok. TikTok is uh, – the three of us are all uh, – people of a certain age that TikTok is generally considered far below. I stayed away from TikTok for a while. I, I've gotten much more into it because it, it's allowing me to hear the voices of fans and perspectives that I've never considered. Um, and so I create a lot of TikToks out there under the name The Ethical Panda. And if you're on TikTok, I would definitely want you to check me out. But also just if you're not and you're interested in what fans are thinking about things, check it out. Just type in the name of your favorite fandom and see you're going to you're going to get some garbage the way you will on any social media. But, you know, it's a way to hear perspectives you might not otherwise. 
All right. Check out TikTok, everybody. That's the message of today's show. And uh, the Ethical Panda. <laughs> and the Ethical Panda, of course, which will be in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Matthew. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. And Pete, thanks as always. Tomorrow, seven brides for seven brothers. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.